Your sensors are correct. Do not adjust your heading. Your heading. You've discovered the Omega Particle. Streaming to the Alpha Quadrant and beyond. 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 Here's your host. The anchorman of the Federation. The doctor of Dilithium. This is Jonathan Wiegand. Like the man said, I am your gracious host, Jonathan Wiegand. Yes, the Doctor of Dilithium, the Anchorman of the Federation, streaming to the Alpha Quadrant and to wherever you're listening today, whether it's in a cubicle, a coffee shop, you know, a car on the way to work, wherever. Thank you so much for listening. And boy, do we have a show for you today. So I just finished Making It So Memoir by Sir Patrick Stewart. And I have to say, I am literally bursting at the seams to talk about this book. All of the experiences he went through and just, I, I'm very excited to talk about it with you today. When I was reading it, I was like, this is going to be so much fun to kind of like prep an episode for, record. This is going to be great. And to make it a little bit easier on everybody, it's going to be a two-part series. I'm going to tell you, and I'm sure you can tell by the title, but I would just strongly recommend this book if you haven't already picked it up and haven't read it or listened to it in an audiobook. Sir Patrick Stewart's a wonderful storyteller, and I mean, I could seriously sit down and read for one, two, three hours. No problem. Like, <laughs> no problem at all. It was not a chore at all to step into the life of Sir Patrick Stewart. If you have the funds and are a big book reader or audio listener, definitely go for it. But I will say, this is not an entire Star Trek book. Don't buy it with that expectation. Uh, the entire thing is 443 pages long, but the Star Trek era isn't even like mentioned until like the beginning of the 300s. So it is very much about his life, his upbringing in northern England at a just a not impoverished family, but a very poor family, and him making the way rungs up the ladders he would say in acting and in traditional theater and it's just absolutely wonderful I, I probably will read it again at some point and we're just going to be covering the star trek experiences on this episode and the next episode but i've picked out some of the big ticket items that you may not necessarily ever heard before number one and number two i know the book has been getting, getting a lot of publicity but i guarantee i haven't i can't guarantee this but I have not seen anything covered that I'm mentioning today, like his thoughts on Tom Hardy or Whoopi Goldberg. That'll be on episode two, but nothing I'm talking about today has been seen on any article that I have seen. Either way, before we get started, just some housekeeping notes. Yes, we will be doing a DS9 review of all 100 plus episodes, so be watching out for that. This week we'll release number one. We already have the script written where it's going to hot and heavy. It's going to be fun. I want everybody to know that's not the only content we're going to do. We're not going to strictly become a DS9 podcast, but it, if you love DS9, it's going to be there. It's going to be fun. And we'll get into why we're going to pursue that on that episode. Really quick, next, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever datapad, hollow novel, or, stre or streaming service you're listening on now. It helps out the podcast tremendously. And all right, without further ado, Luna, I'm sorry for the pun, but I have to. Let's make it so.
So the first topic we're going to talk about today is Sir Patrick Stewart's kind of introduction into the Star Trek world and even his audition. And I had none of this and I was a big Trekkie and I, these are things I just learned throughout the book. So to begin with, Sir Patrick Stewart was conducting kind of the Shakespeare masterclass at UCLA with a dear friend, David Rhodes, who was a professor of English there. And so the Royal Shakespeare Company, which is who Patrick Stewart was working for at the time over in London, did tours of U.S. college campuses. And that's kind of how these dudes met. And after a great run in a couple theater shows, what um, Patrick Stewart calls his best work yet, he had, you know, some time, some free time. He was, he was 46. He really had no other plays or obligations. And he was kind of an actor out of work. And he was kind of complaining to his on the phone to his buddy David, whether it was out of sympathy or genuine interest, he made an offer. He said, hey, buddy, come out to L.A. and we're, You can save my place and we're going to conduct kind of these workshops, maybe these like Shakespeare master classes, and it'll be a lot of fun, kind of get you out of this little funk. And a few days into these master classes, he asked Patrick Stewart, he's like, hey, can you help on this lecture that I'm doing? It's going to be open to the general public. Uh, we're just going to have a few actors doing a couple excerpts from a certain couple certain plays. And the night went off without a hitch. It was just an ordinary night. Had no really idea what the effect it would have on the rest of his life. But I do love in this, uh, in this chapter, he says, I was paid verbatim $100 and dinner at the newly christened location of TGI Fridays. So maybe this is <laughs> this is the 80s, so TGI Fridays, I guess is really a big deal still, but uh, so he gets to have a cool night at TGI Fridays with some of his friends and actor buddies, but why is all any of this important? Like, why does this matter? And that's because Robert Justman was at the lecture and had seen him perform. And you're asking, well, who is this Robert Justman guy? Well, he was a producer for a little show called The Next Generation. And this actually landed Patrick Stewart his first audition. So the funny thing is, Patrick Stewart was not a Trek fan in any way, shape, or form before this audition. He kind of remembered his children watching the original series when you know he would come home early sometimes between like a matinee show and then like an evening show. And his two children would just be sitting in front of the of the TV, just completely absorbed by it. And and in his words, his, the kids were wrapped and did not want to be pestered by dad when it was on. Doesn't surprise me. There are a few stories in the book where Sir Patrick Stewart is really kind of out of it when it comes to pop culture. And I, I'm kind of the same way with myself as I've gotten older, so I completely understand and found solace in that. But... The funniest story, I'll share one non-Trek story here, and that's he was on the set of Dune in the early mid-80s, and he, again, he didn't really pay attention to music or pop culture, and he's talking to this guy named Sting, and he's like, oh, like, what do you do, man? He's like, oh, I'm a musician. He's like, oh, cool, like, what do you play? And the guy's like, I play bass. And he's like, oh, neat. He's like, do you play in a band? And the guy's like, yeah, I play in the police. And Patrick Stewart's like, oh, police band. Well, that's really cool for the community. It's just, yeah, he doesn't really know really anything about pop culture. So not surprised he doesn't know about TOS. But anyway, so he goes to the audition and meets Gene Roddenberry. 
and it's a small 1950s house in LA and apparently the entire meeting was super hella awkward. Uh, a few pleasantries were kind of exchanged, but he wasn't even offered a place to sit down. It was literally only there for a few minutes before Gene Roddenberry interrupted this kind of conversation they were having and said, hey, Gene, thanks for coming, buddy, but bye. That was it. A few months go by, nothing, didn't hear anything, and then we eventually learn, you know, from Robert Justman and Rick Berman, the famous producers of TNG, Patrick Stewart's name just kept coming up and coming up for the role of Captain Picard, and Gene Roddenberry famously said, keep his name away from me. It should never, ever be mentioned in my presence again. So Gene Roddenberry was staunchly against having Patrick Stewart as his Captain Picard, and we'll get into why, because we actually know the reason. After this, like I said, it was a few months, Patrick Stewart goes back to England, he's working his way through this middle life crisis, like I mentioned, he was kind of like in this existential funk, and this whole Hollywood audition kind of awakened in him, this ambition type of drive that he wanted, he was like, I'm going to go for Hollywood and silver screens is going to be kind of what I want to pursue from now on. As fate would have it, he actually gets a call back and he was shocked to get a call back and he was invited to read for the role of Q. He didn't know the role he was going to be auditioning for beforehand, so they kind of threw Q at him. And again, during his second audition, everybody was super cordial. All the Paramount people were super nice, except Gene. Gene Roddenberry would not even make eye contact with him. He was completely cold to him the whole time. Right after this audition, he goes back to London. So he's going from LA to London, LA to London. And as Sir Patrick Stewart says, I was not even over the jet lag. And I get invited back for a third audition. But this time to read in front of Paramount executives. So it's the big deal, the big time. It was also revealed that he would actually be invited for the role and reading of the role of Captain Picard. And so there's also this famous story about how his hairpiece, he forgot it in London and his first wife, Sheila, had to fly that hairpiece out to him in L.A. before the audition. And apparently it was some hairy business, but that's a very famous story. We're not going to cover that here. But one thing I didn't know was that Corey Allen actually reached out to Sir Patrick Stewart before his audition. And Corey Allen is the director of TNG that first season. This was all very hush-hush under the table, as Corey would say. He even told Patrick Stewart, hey, if somebody sees us kind of rehearsing and going over uh, lines and reviewing lines and dialogue, tell them we just randomly met on the street. They should not know that we're meeting in any way, shape, or form. So Corey actually was rooting for Patrick Stewart. He's like, I want you as a role. He gave him a lot of great notes on how to deliver lines and because there was the thing being in theater, he had to like really yell and speak loudly. And he's like, you don't need to do that. This is TV, kind of calm down. So little things like this, when they actually get to the famous third audition with the Paramount execs there, Corey says, hey, I'll read with you. Just randomly, strange man I've never met before. And the audition goes well. And this is, in a nutshell, if you're not going to read the Making It So memoir, this is Patrick Stewart in a nutshell. So after the audition, and this is the late 80s, he kind of went off the grid and he just found a place, a breakfast place and got some, uh, I, I, don't, I forget what he describes, but got some great breakfast and read the newspaper and kind of just sat next to a window watching LA 
kind of go by him. And he did this for two plus hours. And literally while he was just kind of basking in the light of his uh, breakfast burrito, everybody around him was panicking because Paramount was trying to reach him and tell him, hey, buddy, you got the role. So it was kind of like a big line of telephone between London and and L.A., all while this dude's like down the street just having breakfast. So thought that was funny. But that is a nutshell, Patrick Stewart, in my opinion. Just does his own thing, very chill kind of guy. So he actually was reached, and he's like, okay, you got the role. He's like, interesting. And he actually sought some advice while he was in L.A., some esteemed counsel of his, uh, and that person is no other than Sir Ian McKellen. Or should I say Ian McKellen at this time? He wasn't a sir. And they weren't super close yet, but I mean, they casually met and knew each other and could seek each other's advice because their tenures at the Royal Shakespearean Company overlap. And that's originally how they met. So Ian was in LA doing some work and he told Patrick Stewart, hey, don't do this. You must not do this role. You have too much important theater work to do. You can't throw away all of what you've built to do TV. You just can't. That's really funny, (laughs) seeing how we know what we know now. I like the reasoning for Patrick Stewart here. He was like, well, theater will always be there. Whenever I get done with whatever I'm doing in LA and Hollywood theater, I can always go back to theater. But I can't always do TV. TV and movies, that won't always be there. So I'm gonna go with TV. Ever since then, from the success of Star Trek, Patrick Stewart routinely brings up that Ian McKellen was wrong and has him admit that he was wrong. <laughs> but a uh, little jabbing there. And so he's got the role of Captain Picard. And again, there's great on-scene and behind-the-scene roles. We actually had an episode about this, like drama behind the camera kind of series, and TNG was one of them. And if you want to get the nitty-gritty details of that, go listen to that episode. Those, these are, those are mainstream stories. We're kind of not dealing with mainstream here. What I knew was that, oh, he was very serious, but then I had to know, oh, why is he so serious? And we learned that he had a lot of just vulnerability and didn't have any confidence to be there. So he took it, in his words, as a monastic discipline and had very little fun. He wanted it to be completely devoted and completely obsessed with the role. He took it extremely seriously. Now, there's that famous speech where he was talking to the crew. He's like, we're not here to have fun, Denise, damn it. To kind of wrap up this audition and the first couple seasons of his life is that he was talking about Will Wheaton. And he's like, you know, Will Wheaton was just coming off of Stand By Me. This kid had such confidence and he kind of resented Will Wheaton for the first year. And he was like, "I, I was just kind of upset at him at all times and pestered by him. But it was really because he reflected Sir Patrick Stewart's own vulnerability and he wished he had Will's confidence. That's kind of really like eye-opening and big of him to admit after all these years. But I know I said we were stopping, but we're not. We got one more thing. So why did Gene Roddenberry not want Patrick Stewart? And that was because Patrick Stewart was not the ideal version of John Luke Picard that Gene Roddenberry had. And in a way, Patrick Stewart felt sorry for Gene. I mean, John Luke Picard was his creation. He had been super pressured by executives and everyone around him to cast someone who didn't vibe with the mission of his character. He even told famously in a story like uh, Horatio Hornblower, these books 
that's who you need to be. That Patrick Stewart said that was very disrespectful. I didn't like that. He was kind of a dick to me for the first couple years. We just didn't vibe. But eventually they lightened up and Patrick Stewart has a very nice memento saying that he wished he could have seen how Star Trek and Picard would have continued to evolve and grow. And So that's kind of the audition, kind of the first couple seasons, little nuggets that I thought were interesting. We're going to go a little, little fast and then we'll get into another long story here to kind of just break it up. If you were curious what the very first uh, scene of The Next Generation was ever filmed, and that was, of course, the episode Encounter at Farpoint, but the first scene was between Riker and Data meeting in the woods in the holodeck, and that was the very first scene they ever shot. Sir Patrick Stewart was not on call that day, but decided to go anyway, just to kind of, it's an old English acting thing that you would go and still support. He was going just to kind of get the vibe and kind of calm down get some confidence and calm down before he had to uh, report the next day. He was very uneasy about the show. He was like, I don't know how well this is going to go, but he says seeing the two, Jonathan Frakes and Brent Spiner, have such good chemistry for two people that have never really met, have never acted before, is that it busted his hopes for the show. He thought, okay, we might have a chance here. Literally, everybody was saying it's not even going to make it till Thanksgiving. Don't even try. And they, I think they started shooting in like maybe middle of the summer. They're like, it's not even going to get that far. Just enjoy the money and, and run because it's not going to last. And so the very first scene for John Luke Picard and Sir Patrick Stewart was when he's kind of walking out of this corridor and he walks past the turbo lift and Riker kind of speaks to him. And Picard just looks at him and doesn't reply and just keeps on walking. That is the very first scene Sir Patrick ever did. So I thought that was cool. Never knew that before. Other one, which is a really kind of sweet notion, was that the crew, as the years went on, actually had this bar that they went to once a week after shooting. The, what was that called? The bridge crew, you know, the big, the big heads, the big people, would walk over to this bar for drinks just kind of let off some steam and this bar was called Nicodell and it was kind of this old faded bar and restaurant it was adjacent to the Paramount lot on Melrose and they just became regulars and the bartender would make drinks as soon as they entered he would sometimes lock the bar so no one could come in it was just they could enjoy themselves and eventually that bar got torn down to make way for VIP parking spots at uh, Paramount but they eventually did closed the bar and some of the items were auctioned off you know none of the star trek crew knew about it and just they were really sad about it but they were like i was like oh that's kind of cool and that kind of speaks to why we see such a great chemistry with the cast um even like you know all these years later in picard season three is because these these people literally just like hung out all the time <laughs> they were legit friends which is kind of cool because i don't expect that like with a lot of other shows that they're like oh no they hung out even after work, for years and years and years. Another cool story is Naked Now episode. Uh, Sue Patrick Stewart has some opinions about that. And if you don't remember what episode that is, that's the episode where the Enterprise gets infected with this virus that makes everyone super horny. <laughs> Lack of better words, everyone gets super horny. And Sir Patrick Stewart actually hated it. He actually said, it reeked of desperation and something he might expect out of the writers after several seasons, because this is running out of ideas. Again, this is the famous episode where Tasha Yar's like, 
uh, hey, Data, can you have sex? And Data's like, yeah, I'm fully functional. I butchered that line, but that's what it was. And kind of shows Gene was a fan of cheesecake. And I mean, he even had Marina Sirtis wear miniskirt and go-go boots on the first few episodes. So it's kind of like the 60s never ended. He wanted everyone to kind of have this sex appeal and sexy nature. This actually beautifully dovetails into one of the most interesting pieces of little Star Trek lore that I had no idea. And that is about the uniforms. So yes, Gene Ronberry wanted everyone to have like this sex appeal. And they had the one-piece uniforms. And it was actually created by the original series OG costume direct designer, William Thies. They were made of spandex and deliberate, as Sir Badger Seward says, deliberately cut one size too small so they never wrinkled and it kept everyone's body on constant display. Yikes. Spandex, too. That would not be comfortable. He goes into describing what it was like to wear the uniform and the problem was that the uniforms were not only that they left little to the imaginations, but they were constantly constricting to the point of causing pain for everybody. Uh, he's like, when I stood up straight, this one piece stretched tightly across his upper body, his shoulders, his back, his lower back. And so it just kind of reminds like of a rubber band. It stretches and you have to hold it. They were kind of all complaining of aches and pains. And, you know, one could imagine with all that pulling, that would not be fun. And Patrick Stewart actually complained to Gene Roddenberry himself. He's like, look, this is terrible. Can we please change it? Fell on deaf ears. He wanted... Gene wanted that sex appeal. So Sir Patrick Stewart's agent actually came up with a brilliant idea. And he consulted Sir Patrick Stewart's doctor and asked him to make an appeal as a medical professional to change uniforms. So Sir Patrick Stewart's agent was Steve Donteville. I may pronounce that wrong. And he threw his Hollywood weight around and intimidated the Paramount executives that if the situation was not remedied, they would take this medical professional like recommendation and they would sue Paramount for any muscular or joint damage that any of the actors suffered particularly you know Sir Patrick Stewart and the strategy worked it took two seasons to implement the changes but finally the new costume designer Robert Blackman (laughs) sympathetically came up with a two-piece uniform made of polyester so that's why the uniform changed in season three versus season two is that Patrick Stewart's agent was like, look, bro, we're going to sue your ass if you don't change these uniforms. And they did. And then now we get the famous, you know, top piece and bottom piece separate. As we know, Picard's uniform has to be that smooth red command. So every time Sir Patrick Stewart would sit down, he would tug on his shirt to smooth it out. And this tick would eventually become, as I like to call it, the Picard Maneuver. Yes, it's not the Ferengi kind of exploits he did on the Stargazer, but actually the Tick. So, And again, just a great piece of information I had no idea about. I knew that the uniforms changed, but I didn't really know why. Getting into the, the last big story, we have another one after this, but this is probably going... kind of shocked me. I had literally had no idea. And this is about his affair. To set it up, Star Trek has been running for about two years at this point, and he starts to wonder to the writers, he's like, hey, Jonathan Frakes gets all the ladies. When will Picard and when will I get some of the action, the on-screen action? And let's not forget, Riker is the horniest man in the fleet, hands down. 
Picard kind of had this solitary old buzzard, you know, who would experience, you know, some type of poignant reunions with ex-girlfriends and then others he would have storylines that can concluded with this wistful, you know, what might have been endings, but no real down and dirty romance. A side note, actually, so the TNG episode, you know, where Picard meets an old flame in Paris and kind of goes through, oh, well, what if I met her at the Eiffel Tower and I didn't abandon her and ghost her at this cafe? Like, what might my life have looked like? That woman was actually a member of the Mamas and the Papas. So, Cool Beans didn't know that. But either way, going back to the main story, so, yeah, Sir Patrick Stewart wanted Picard to fall for someone and see the relationship develop in real time. And then, you know, presumably fall apart and go to pieces. And the famous writer, era Stephen Bear, was receptive to the pitch and actually wrote hilarious and charming script called Captain's Holiday. And it checked all of Patrick Stewart's boxes. Again, in Captain's Holiday, this is when an overworked John Luke Picard is urged by his crewmates and Dr. Crusher is like, you gotta pack your bags, leave the Enterprise, and go on a vacation to Ryza. If you don't know what Ryza is, it's a, basically the pleasure planet of the Alpha Quadrant. It's where you go to just have sex and, and drink. And you can, there's water sports, but those are the first two things that people go for. And I just, the only thing I remember from that episode is the deep plunging V. The V-neck, the doble V. Very, very deep V. You probably know this episode is the uh, most memorable moment. Besides the deep V is the is a Horgon that Riker asked Picard, hey, can you pick me up one? And Picard, you know, obviously does because he's a good friend. And he sets this Horgon down while he's reading this book. And if you don't know what a Horgon looks like, it's kind of like a wooden fertility goddess thing. That's kind of what it looks like. Either way, so he's reading his book and all these women start coming up to him. He gets frustrated with one of them. Because these women are just like, hey, nice shoes, want to F? And like, he's like, no, I want to read my book, leave me alone. And then one woman explains, look, the Horagon is a rising symbol of sexuality. And it displays that, you know, you're seeking Jamaharon. It's kind of a slow burn, but it leads to a near Seifeldian moment in the episode where Picard goes, Riker. <laughs> he's like, ah, oh, you got me. In real life, Sir Patrick Stewart was actually not seeking Jamaharon. He had a little piece of advice that he got from early on in his career and said, if you say I love you enough to someone on stage, eventually you're going to actually start to believe it. That is exactly what happened here, as you can probably tell. So on the second day of shooting, Patrick Stewart had this tradition where he would go and like shake the hand and introduce himself to whoever the guest star was that week, if they had a guest star. And um, he did that again. It saw... Jennifer Hetick, who plays the character Vash. He saw her in the a trailer and shook her hand and said, welcome to the crew. And, and when he does that, immediately the makeup trailer explodes and because they have the, you know, the bridge crew there. And they're like, watch out for this guy. His accent's fake and he's trouble and so on and so forth. And after that, they, the, the rest of the crew kind of backed off because again, Patrick Stewart is married at this point. <laughs> and they kind of back off, but there's still some guys, um, is mainly the guys coming up to him and saying, Hey, uh, wow, you're lucky man. And wow, she's such a beauty and whispering in his ear, that kind of stuff. So just, yeah, really awful. So uh, on the last day of shooting, it was a late night, goes up to Jenny, as she would like to be called, and said, hey, it would have been really nice to kind of get a drink somewhere, get something to eat, but it's a little too late. 
But I do have a bottle of wine in my trailer if you want to just drink and hang out and talk. And so Jenny accepts. You know, this is a Friday night. The shooting's over. And after an hour together, Patrick Stewart admits, he's like, hey, I'm attracted to you, Jenny. And they agree to go on dinner the next Saturday. And after dinner, they go back to her apartment and Jamaha run happens in real life between the two. So yes, cheated on his wife. There's no way around it. And he had to keep it under wrap. His, a few weeks later, his wife Sheila would be coming to L.A. for Easter break with his daughter and his son. His son was in L.A. at the time, going to school, training to be an actor. When Sheila does come to L.A. for Easter, he admits his infidelity and basically started the road down to divorce. And just a little bit of background from the book, Sheila, his first wife, was a, a dancer, kind of choreographer in London, very much cared about her career as well. And when he accepted the role of Picard, that meant he was in L.A. for 10 months out of the year. So 10 months out of the year, he's in L.A., his wife is in London. They both have their careers. She doesn't want to leave London. He wants to pursue the screen and was terrible. And as Sir Patrick Sewer says, he's like, it was well over years before, you know, this whole fling with Jenny. This actually caused a huge riff in his life. For Sir Patrick Stewart, his uh, daughter and him are estranged for several decades and still might be. He didn't hasn't really cleared that up in the book. Says that her his daughters never got over the pain of him splitting up the family and causing her that kind of drama. And his son, like I said, was in college in California at the time, so it was easier to kind of connect with him. And But what, what happened to Jenny? Sir Patrick Stewart tells a story about how they are in Fiji. They have to kind of fly in separate days. So he had to fly in two days early and she shows up. And I mean, it was just kind of crazy what they went through to avoid the paparazzi. His marriage is pretty much over. It's done. But they're still hounding him. Jenny, while they're in Fiji, says, look, I can't take it. The stress, the constant strain on the relationship of battling the press. I just can't take it. I don't want to deal with it. I think we should end it. And they both agreed to kind of part part ways. And it's actually funny because Jenny later comes back to play Vash on The Next Generation. And she reprises her role again in DS9. Uh, happy story for Jenny that she eventually married and had a daughter. And that Sir Patrick Stewart said it gladdened his heart when he learned that. It's really just really kind of wild to me. Because I had no idea some of these pap- paparazzi stories. And he tells a few of them like, they would literally get physically harassed and they, they would get trapped in like car circles where they had nowhere to go and they just literally had to sit in their car and just be photographed until the paparazzi let them go and or a cop came by and, and split it up. So it was just terrible scenes, but this is kind of something that plagues Sir Patrick Stewart until his current wife, his third wife, um, Sonny, is that he has kind of relationship troubles. If you want more into that, please go check out the book, but... This is kind of what, in in the time that all this is happening, he allowed himself to get thrown himself into his work. And this was really at a good point because this was when the Borg started coming up in TNG, particularly the episode Best of Both Worlds. So while Best of Both Worlds is premiering, famous cliffhanger, he's doing this whole thing with Jenny. He writes a really interesting way of saying you know that Locutus knew that John Luke was alive in him 
but he was helpless and trapped. And it really resonated with Patrick Stewart. And that's because this quote unquote celebrity that he had become knew that, you know, the normal everyday jobbing actor that he'd been most for his life was still in there and that the real him was still in there. And he's like doing those two scenes for Best of Both Worlds were really emotionally close to him and very cathartic. Helped him get some uh, closure and kind of get some uh, healing. So I thought that was interesting and maybe that's why his performance is so good because he comes from the heart. But to end everything, to wrap this section up on a lighter note, he talks about how Best of Both Worlds and that famous cliffhanger, he's like the summer, he's like people would just randomly come up to him you ruined my summer or what the F happened to Picard or what happens with, with Riker and Shelby and, and that he had no idea how popular the show really was until that summer because he's like, he would get it everywhere. So I thought that was kind of hilarious. And for our last story of this episode, we're going to talk about what Sir Patrick Stewart calls his most moving episode of the next generation. And that is the episode, the inner light or the flute episode. As I like to call it. And um, it's co written by Morgan Jendel, who based it on a Beatles song by George Harrison, whose lyrics are themselves based on the words of the classic Chinese philosophical test, text, Tao Te Ching. The episode is unique because, you know, as you remember, or if you don't remember, it takes part all inside Picard's mind. He lives an entire life, like 40 years. Or as George Harrison's song would like to say, it's without going out of its doors. That's all inside Picard's mind. It's his favorite and most moving episode of TNG for Sir Patrick Stewart because his own son, Daniel, who was a professional actor at the time, is plays in the episode as his older son. So I thought that was pretty cool. And they, the first, I think it's the only time they actually got, got to act together in a professional setting on screen. Sir Patrick Stewart puts it in a light of it's a time capsule. It's something that I always have and I can go back and watch and I just get an instant lump in my throat. Fun fact, he actually rewatched all of TNG, every episode, and prepped for the book. There is a lot of fun stories and we will continue those next week, like him taking Molly or his all of his thoughts on doing an entire TNG rewatch. Is King Charles a Star Trek fan? How did they really pitch Picard to him? And then what was the original ending to Picard season three that didn't happen? Yes, it wasn't the card playing game, spoiler alert. It was another scene. So we're going to go into all of that. Plus, like I mentioned before, his thoughts on Whoopi and Tom Harding. It's going to be a lot of fun. That has been our first episode, first part, kind of going through the fun stories in my review of Making It So Memoir by Sir Patrick Stewart. Thank you all so much for listening in Luna. Let's wrap it up. Thank you all so much for listening. And like I said, I'm still bursting at the seams. I loved reading it. I loved kind of talking about these like hidden stories of the Star Trek world. And I mean, there could even be even three or four more episodes about his personal life. But I just wanted to kind of keep it in a two part series just to make it easier for everybody and just talk about Trek with you guys. And again, we have DS9 coming out later this week. Thank you all so much for your love and kind of talking with some of you and and just our explosion on Instagram. I think we're up to almost 18,000 followers now. So uh, thank you all so much for that. We love it. 
And then if you're in the mood for some great entertainment, please check out www.jasontalksmovies.wordpress.com. He does a great funny job and I'm excited to see, I think he'll, he's probably going to be writing about Loki sometime soon, right, Luna? Luna, my intern, everybody. Yeah. So be on the lookout for that. And again, be on the lookout for part two coming next week as well for Making a So Memoir. And in the meantime, remember to take care of yourselves, take care of that mental health. We're starting to get into, you know, some colder weather. Days are not as long. So remember, keep those uh, crowns straight, kings and queens. And as always, second star of the right, straight on till morning. <laughs>